for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting, brought to you by ElkGrows.com, with your host, Gilbert Ornelas and elk hunting coach, Joe Gillian. You want to hunt elk? And they live to hunt elk. Their goal is to share with you what they have learned grinding it out for over 35 seasons doing what they love. So come on into camp and set a spell. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunters. Welcome everybody. I'm Joe Gillia and this is our Insights Edition where we want to learn and talk about all things elk. Today our special guest and I compare today's elk hunter versus the hunters 20 years ago when it comes to preparedness, knowledge, effectiveness, their ethics, and woodsmanship. So, but listen, for all you grinders out there, we're going to take it even a step further and give a tip or two along the way for each of those areas. And with us today from Idaho is Michael Batiste from the Elk Calling Academy. Evening, Michael. Evening. Michael, Thank I got to do that. <laughs> yeah, we're going to start that way. No, thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. I, I wanted to tell you because I've been a coach for 30 some years and mm -hmm. I'm one of those lazy name guys, man. I shortened everybody's name. So I'm trying to make sure I go Michael instead of Mike there. But uh, I, I get it. I get it. I coached high school baseball for a while. And there was times that I just shouted, hey, you. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, pretty cool. This is awesome. You're in Idaho. I'm in Cimarron, New Mexico. We got a great connection here. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time and being part of this because um, like I told you before, uh, I'm a fan of what you do. I love your format. Thank you. Uh, I love the things that you do that are helping so many guys to straighten that curve out a little bit for learning. And I truly believe that what I do, what you do, what so many uh, people out there are doing, the more that these guys and gals can, uh, can see, can hear, can view, just makes a better experience for all of us. And right now we're, we're needing that. It's a lot of fun. I, I mean, anytime I get a chance to sit down and talk about elk hunting, which is something that I'm truly passionate about, it, it's, you don't have to twist my arm. <laughs> but I, I think kind of like you with that, that coaching background, I mean, when you coach an athlete and you see that athlete succeed, right? Um, not only on the field, but off the field, you know, that pride that you get. And, and same thing with, you know, helping individuals, you know, learn about elk hunting and some of the traditions behind it and the passion behind it and 
there's nothing better that when I get a phone call from a student and they're calling you from the mountainside and you can just hear that excitement on their Isn't voice awesome? because they just arrowed their first bull. And it's almost like you're just, you're right there. But also too, it takes you back to when you still, you know, when you started that journey. I mean, it takes me back to my first elk hunt and my first successful elk right. hunt. And so it gives me the opportunity to relive that bit of my past as well. And it's just, sure. it's, it's just so cool that, you know, I have that opportunity to, you know, be able to share this and, and, and do that. And I think, I think I get more enjoyment out of their success than my own punch tag. Yeah, yeah definitely. That, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. So Michael, uh, for those people that haven't, um, seen the Elk Calling Academy and don't know about your history and stuff. Can, can you give us a touch on that for a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I actually started my elk hunting career in the, um, you know, mid to late eighties over in, uh, Eastern Oregon. Um, mm -hmm. my stepdad, he, he, he wasn't a big game hunter. He was a bird hunter. Uh, my grandfather was a big game hunter, but at that time he, you know, was, you know, too old to get out there. So it was basically just me and some buddies just learning. And in fact, a lot of when I first started archery hunting for elk was completely solo. And that's what, you know, sparked that fire. And then I moved to Idaho um, in God, mid 90s, early 90s, 94, 95 ish. And that's when it really took off because I got hooked up with a group of guys that went seven miles back in the back country. And it was that type of place where you went to bed every night and you were listening to 20, 25, 30 bulls just bugling all around you. And, yeah. and I mean, just magical. And that right there, I mean, I, I was hooked. Right. At that point, I just wanted to learn all I could about elk and the way the elk calling academy came about um you know i've worked in the hunting industry for you know over 15 years now uh you know representing call companies and, and different manufacturers of you know going to sports shows traveling around doing seminars all throughout the northwest and up into canada and i've always helped people learn how to call. And, and in fact, that's one thing I did a lot of times at sports shows when, uh, you know, now it's called Rocky Mountain hunting calls. Back then it was a bugling bull and I would be in the booth and somebody would buy a call and, and, and I would sit there and work with them, you know, make sure that they walked away and knowing how to at least make a little bit of sound. And, uh, two years ago I had a uh, archery shop call me and they're like, Hey, we had a guy in here asking for some lessons and you know, he's willing to pay. And I'm like, he doesn't need to pay uh, <laughs> name and number. And so I called him and we talked and he's, you know, and he's like, I know your time is valuable away from your family. I'm willing to pay. And, and he goes, just think, think about what it's worth to you. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll get back to you. No sooner had I hung up the phone and walked away and my youngest walks up and says, Dan, I want swimming lessons. I'm like, okay, fine. I'll go find you, find you a teacher. And I took about three steps and that light bulb went off. Oh, yeah. Wait a minute. We can pay for guitar lessons, drum lessons, dance lessons, driving lessons, all this stuff. I have 30 years of elk hunting experience and knowledge and calling. Right. Man, somebody might find value in that. 
And so yeah. that's when I called the guy back and said, okay, yeah, uh, you know, I'll do one-on-one lessons, $30 per lesson. And, and then all of a sudden, then it branched out with people. Well, I'd really like to do lessons, but I don't live in the Boise area. I can't drive over to your house. Will you, how many people would it take you for you to come into our area? And that's when I started looking and found Zoom. Uh-huh. And that allowed me the ability to sit down with someone just like you and I are right now and still be able to see what they're doing with their mouth and what they're doing with their tongue and right. make those adjustments. And so then we added zoom and now all of a sudden, you know, we have students all the way over to West Virginia and Florida and, you know, all over the U S and so the world gets a lot smaller, doesn't it? Oh, it's, it's, it's amazing that, you know, and, and at first it was just kind of focusing on, the calling aspect and kind of some calling tactics. And, but then I started getting a lot of questions about elk behavior and scouting. And so it's just kind of evolved in the last couple of years and grown to where the Academy, I mean, it's elk calling Academy is the name, but it really covers everything in regards with elk. I mean, their biology, their behavior, you know, seasonal, Uh, but we also get into gear and um, you know, now we have, um, a Patreon page, which is a monthly membership patron, um, pretty easy to find. It's at elkcallingacademy.com. And I started dropping the instructional videos in there because the one thing with the one-on-one lessons, with the people face-to-face here, as soon as they leave my house, right, they don't have anything to go back on. Sure, right. Zoom was great because I could record it and send it to them, mm-hmm. but then they only had access to that recording for a couple of weeks. So before you go too far, Michael, I want to make sure that that's clear because I, I heard you talk about your Patreon page and, you know, to a viewer that doesn't know what that is, it's an actual website. Yes. Patreon is a website where people can basically have patrons right. join and pay a subscription amount for right. some type of service. Correct. Correct. So when you say Patreon page, people are going to your Patreon website. So yes, it's, it's, so it's, it's patreon.com forward slash Elk Calling Academy. But there the one go. thing I did is when I first started Elk Calling Academy, I went on and I bought five or six domains. Mm-hmm. So, and right now I have elkcallingacademy.com that actually just points right to, to that Patreon page. Oh, okay. So that's Great. usually why I tell people if, if you just type in elkcallingacademy.com, it will take you, you know, right to that page. And it's, it's $15 a month, but I've dropped those instructional videos in there, which are the same videos that I teach in the one-on-one lessons. Mm-hmm. But the neat thing is, is as long as, as long as you're a paid patron, you have access to that to go back and watch it as many times as you want. Right. But we also have e-scouting instructional videos in there. Um, every other every other Thursday, we do a live Q&A only for patron, Patreon members. You have to be able to log into that page and be a paid member to see that link, to see that live Q and a, and so it's, it's great, you know, interaction. It's, it's just, it's a great, great platform because I get to drop a lot of articles, mm-hmm. gear use a brand partner deals with, you know, companies that I work closely with that, uh, you know, give discounts to the patron members. And so there, there definitely are incentives 
And, you know, we also have gear giveaways. So who doesn't, who doesn't like winning some free gear? Well, and, and I, you know, to your credit as well, because a lot of people, they look at that and they go, oh, so yeah, you know, I got to pay a subscription to learn this stuff. Well, your skill sets, number one, um, man, try to uh, go do anything and get consulting from anybody for $15 a month. But uh, that's on one side of it. But I want people to understand, uh, I have I've watched your stuff. I've, I've looked at your uh, Wapiti Wednesdays and uh, uh, that you do when you're doing so much free content for people as well. And, and what people need to understand is that uh, people like you, like myself, like uh, Corey Jackson, born and raised, that we love and we're passionate about what we do and we want people to be successful. So yes, you have that. And, you know, you have to pay your bills, you have to pay for those, you know, for those lessons and stuff. And, yes. you know, because of you, I actually started one of those Patreon pages. And um, basically, the only reason I have that is until certain things are in place, you just got to, you know, you got to keep the lights on. Right. So if, if people really enjoy what you're doing, or they want specific uh, lessons, if they want individual attention, it is such a great format. So uh, I, I want to applaud that. I appreciate that. And that's, that's the other thing too, is, is with the, you know, Patreon page, there's still the ability to do the one-on-one -on -one lessons if they want some of that additional one-on-one right. -on -one work. And, and, and then again, those patron members get a, a disc because typically, you know, it's, it's $30 per lesson, which lasts about an hour. So basically $30 an hour for those one-on-one -on -one lessons. Right. Um, so they can certainly, you know, still do that. But the thing that I found is those, those patrons that have gone through those videos, then when they come to me for the one-on-one, -on -one, we get so much more out of those one-on-ones because, because of their background. Well, because they've already gone through some sure. of those instructional videos that have, you know, some of the basic drills and, sure. and some of the basic sounds sure. that we can it's, it's almost, okay, let's go back to the sports analogy. It's, it's, you know, like a high school kid coming onto the field to play baseball that has never played baseball before in his life versus somebody else that started in T-ball and has come through Little League. And so he's, he's got those fundamentals. He's, he's got um, an idea of what's going on. And you can get so much more done with that individual oh, sure. than you can over here. So in um, education, we call that scaffolding basically building one yeah we call that yes. building one skill on top of the other and yes. that's what enhances each level that you go on there and uh um and the thing that i want to put out there as well is is that you know you think about that 15 dollars a month uh and there's so many guys that are looking that you know uh, after they get done paying for their tag their license their gas their travel man, what a, a small amount to try to help ensure a little bit of success. So, you know, and, and my listeners that are out there, you know, I talk to those blue collar guys that are out there, you know, you want to get something for your money. And so if you're going to put that kind of money to come out West, or if you're in New Mexico and, and you're already, you know, going to go up to the Hills, I, I recommend any of this stuff to you just to help you get a step closer to punching that tag. So uh, I think it's a great format, Michael. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it, you know, hunting, it, it, it takes 
a decent amount of money to go out there and and hunt and and enjoy it and why not you know do just a little bit extra so yeah like you said $15 a month just drive by Starbucks twice yeah right exactly. two, days during, two days during the month you got it covered come on so, guy you know years ago you were going they're charging what for coffee that'll never happen it'll never yes, fly yes, right yes. <laughs> well and, you know and, and I've had so many students that you know have come back and it was like you know we we think you're selling yourself short you know you could you could charge two three four times more than what you are and and I said okay you can afford two, three, four right. times more, but there's people out there that, that $15 a month is a stretch. Sure. So you know, they are paycheck to paycheck. They are tight. Sure. Very, very frugal. And, and I didn't want to alienate anybody. I wanted to give everybody the opportunity to share because I, I mean, you've been, you've been out there, you're interacting with a bull and you're calling back and forth. And it's just, there's a lot of times when I'm behind my hunting partners that I just have this huge grin on my face that I'm almost <laughs> chuckling because it's so much fun. Right. And, and right. to, to, you know, see back there and, and you're doing some things and all of a sudden he gives this sound and it's like, you're done. I got so you. The, and I tell people, look, the, the big thing about the difference a lot of times between those people that punch their tag and those people that don't, it just comes down to confidence. And when you can do anything to improve that confidence, it's basically your skill sets of knowledge, of understanding that animal behavior, and you need to do anything that you can to do that. And there are so many tools. There's a lot of free content out there. Use all of that. But if yes. you want some specific, take a look at things like this. So, um, our topic today that, mm -hmm. uh, that we're going to talk about, and this is really cool because it gives us a chance to, you know, to tap on a lot of different things, is the elk hunters today, uh -huh. you know, our elk hunters today versus those hunters 20 years ago, you know, when you look at those areas of preparedness, of knowledge, effectiveness, ethics, woodmanship, we're going to kind of tap on some of those areas, but man, there's, uh, in some areas, there's great improvement and some areas there's a little bit of loss. And uh, yes. Yes. what do you think, when you compare hunters today to yesterday in some of those areas, what are some of your thoughts on that? You, you know, first off, you know, you touched on it, the, the amount of free knowledge that's out there mm -hmm. to help yourself prepare. I mean, it, in fact, Wayne Carlton and I were talking about this today. You, you know, Wayne started, you know, maybe a year or two before me. So, um, <laughs> but no, I, I mean, you know, back then in the, in the mid to late eighties, there was nothing. I, yeah. I mean, there, there wasn't YouTube, there wasn't outdoor channel, there wasn't hunting shows, there wasn't, uh, you know, companies producing VHS tapes with hunts there wasn't even hardly any books. I mean, I, I think um, Valerius Geist, who is a Canadian biologist, I don't even think his book came out until 91, 92. And then there was a couple of more that got released in 95, 96. But these books didn't even become popular until the late 90s. So you have, you know, a decade of time when, you know, things were, 
really starting to progress that the only way you got knowledge was each fall out in the woods and, and interactions with those elk. And that's, that's one reason why I started keeping a journal. I, I took a, a spiral ring notebook to camp with me. And when I got back to camp at night, I just wrote the date on the top and then I just started writing what the weather was, what the temperature was, you know, what type of activity I saw, what sounds I heard, what I did, what type of responses. And and I did that for every day. But then during the winter, I'd go back and read through those. And and what's really cool is you you read those and then everything replays through your mind again and it's just fresh. Well, you start doing that three, four, five years, mm-hmm. and you've got 10 to, 10 to 15 to 20 pages per year. I a mean, database. Five, you have a thousand pages of information to start yep. through. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, I, the, the access to information now versus back then is just tremendous. And also the advancements in some of the gear. Oh. Um, yeah. I mean, you think back then you're going to come out West and you're going to go into some mountains. Well, if you don't know how to read a topo map, <laughs> you're really out of luck. It's foot, it's foot on the ground, you know, and Absolutely. no GPS, nope. uh, you know, it, and we were talking about that just the other day with, with Trent from born and raised. He was saying guys coming out here. The only thing, only word he could have is basically there's got to be a fear, you know? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I talk about that all the time because even with, you, you know, the, the online mapping systems now, and, and, and I hear this from a lot of people that, you know, they're like, okay, we're going out to Colorado for a 10-day hunt and blah, blah, blah. And I talk to them after the hunt and I'm like, well, how did it go? And, and I would always hear the same thing. Holy cow, that country was a lot bigger than what I was expecting. It was a lot more rugged than what I was prepared for. Um, it's, it's one of those things that, and that's another thing that I try to do now when, when you know, talking to people. I, I love, you know, people with positive outlooks and ambitions. But honestly, when I hear from somebody that's coming from back east and they're like, yeah, we're going out west. There's four of us for a 10-day hunt. We're going to go nine miles back in and we're going to kill four bulls. And I kind of chuckle and said, I love your optimism, but let me kind of paint reality for you. Mm-hmm. So, and, and at first, they don't like to hear the reality. But a lot of times I get that follow-up phone call that was like, wish we would have listened to you because you <laughs> nailed it on the head. So, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So even if you do get nine miles in and even if you do kill those four bulls, the experience of getting those four bulls out nine miles, that's, it, uh, that's it, one to remember. Exactly. So, um, but the, but the other thing on the flip side, like, you know, you, you said there's been some good advancements in the 20 years, but there's also been, you, you know, some regression and right you kind of mentioned ethics and, and I think that's one thing now ethics it's, it's up to each of us to have our own ethics and develop that level of ethics. But I got into archery to see how close to animals I could get. So, right. and, and I think that is a skill set 
to get that animal close. And I'm seeing more and more and more where there's people that are, you know, talking and saying, yeah, I took an 87 yard shot on an elk or I took a 92 yard shot on a deer. And I understand wholeheartedly the skill set that it takes to execute a shot at that distance with a bow. Right. But we are still dealing with a wild animal that's unpredictable. Correct. That, I mean, that elk take one step at that distance. And now all of a sudden, this could be day one of your 10-day hunt. Yep. You're in for nine more days of pure misery. Absolutely, man. And, so, you know, I think that's one of the things, though, you know, we were talking about ethics, that the other thing we talked about was effectiveness. And so as the equipment has become more effective, which it has, mm-hmm. that kind of lends itself to some of those longer distance shots. And so now each and every one of us have to deal with that ethics question. We have to know what our skill set is so that we can actually stay within ourselves. Yes. And in fact, uh, uh, this past Wednesday on Wapiti Wednesday Q and a, I had an individual ask me, you know, what's, what's the farthest shot you would take on an elk. And, and still to this day, to me, it's 40 yards. Right. I will not, I will not take the first shot on an elk past 40 yards. Um, too many things that can happen. Now, if I already have an arrow in and I'm, I'm tracking that animal and I want to do a follow-up, right. then yeah, by all means, I would take a longer shot. But also to me, I kind of put it with me that, yes, it takes a skill set to execute that longer shot. Right. But what about the level of skill that it takes to get that animal even closer, to get that animal to 18 yards, 12 yards well, see, that's where, you know, a lot of people, when they talk about um, this whole thing about trophy hunting, you know, uh, about the size of the rack. Now, for me, like I said, I always go out and I want to put, I, I want to bring an animal home. So there's a lot of times that uh, it does not matter what's on top of it. Do we all, you know, do we want right. to kill a nice big bull? That's awesome. In fact, when I, when we think about that, to take a mature bull right. is an incredible challenge. The reason we get a lot of those smaller branch bulls and those, those uh, uh, satellite bulls is because they're just not as bright. Yes. <laughs> so yes. we're kind of taking advantage of, of their lack of, of skill sets where that mature bull, if you really want to have a challenge, uh, then to say, hey, I'm holding out and I'm going after and I'm going to bring in that mature bull. Well, my hat's off to you because, Mm -hmm. you know, just like you said, that challenge of getting that close or that challenge of, you know, taking that monarch who is so intelligent is, um, it's a, that's a heck of a a challenge there. It it is. And, 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 you know, really the definition of trophy varies from person to person. Sure it does. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, to go out with a bow and arrow and, to harvest an animal is a feat in itself. And, and yeah, the, the, the trophy and I, I'm a lot like you. I, I mean, in our house, all we eat is wild game. And for me, it's, it's not that I look an animal, look at an animal and go, okay, is he a trophy? Do I want to take him or not? Right. For me, it's if something cool happens in the hunt, that's kind of unique or this or that, 
I'm going to harvest that animal. And it it doesn't matter if it's a spindly three by four raghorn or what. It's just there was something unique about that hunt that I want to remember that journey. I want to remember that experience. And, and in fact, I have, I have a rack over here on my wall from Montana that is a small little five by five. That's probably barely 200 inches if that, Mm -hmm. but he has dried velvet on his antler. Right. Right. So that's the first and only bull that I've ever seen with shards of dried velvet running around. And this was, uh, the second week of October. So I, I mean, that's something that's unique. And I, I was in this old burn, there was a dozen bulls bugling and he was coming in in single file with, uh, four or five other raghorns that, I mean, I'm just watching this whole thing unfold and I'm like, wow, that's, that's really, really cool. And then as soon as I saw, as soon as that bull got close enough and I saw that dried velvet and I'm like, you're coming home with me. It's, it's done. I'm going to remember this, this burnt basin, everything that's going on about this day because of that uniqueness. So, right. so do you think, I mean, you take a look when we talk about effectiveness, uh-huh. effectiveness is basically, um, you know, that individual um, accomplishing a task at hand. Right. And, you know, I think back to, you know, guys 20 years ago, that we're getting it done with the equipment and the styles. And like you said, some of the, the, I mean, the first way I ever hunted uh, elk was basically, I mean, this nose wasn't, you know, it wasn't this size for nothing, man. I mean, I would basically walk crosswind, still hunt, walk crosswind till I smelled them and then hunt into the wind, you know, and my first uh, diaphragm call was actually a turkey call Mm -hmm. that because they weren't, putting out uh, elk reeds at the time. So were they, were, were we just as effective then as we are now? Or do you think that it's, it's more effective to this day? You know, I, I, yeah, I think that there, to a certain extent, yeah, there's, there's still a high level of effectiveness. Um, but it's still that, that effectiveness and consistency. Mm-hmm from year to year, I still think is kind of a small group like it was, you know, back then. Um, You know, I, the early days, the pioneers, like you talked about the turkey reed, which is where the elk reed, you know, developed. And, you know, the forefathers that, you know, Larry D. Jones and Wayne Wayne Carlton, Carlton, Jacobson and, and, you know, Will Primos and, and, and what these guys did for, bringing elk calls to the market that opened up a whole other avenue for hunting. I mean, my first elk call was something that my uncle had made out of an old tin pillbox case and a condom. So, and rubber bands. And, you know, when I told him I was going elk hunting for the first time, he handed that to me and (laughs) I need to, I need to change out this latex. And he opens up the package right in front of me. And I'm like, there's no way in heck I'm sticking that anywhere near my mouth. No, just, just trust me, trust me on this. And, and, and yeah, my first elk hunt lasted a total of 42 minutes before I had an elk on the ground. Wow. All because of that pillbox and condom. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And I got I, pulling out a condom saying, "Trust me." Yeah, that's that's a whole different. <laughs> yeah, just relax and trust me. I know what I'm doing. Here. Um, but no, and I, I remember going back to him and going, he, he, "You need to make these. You know, sure. you need to make these to sell them." And and he's like, "No, this is this is our family secret. You're you, right. you're not even going to show this to anybody." And <laughs> and then I think a couple of years later, ELK had uh, the cow talk, which is basically sure. kind of the, the same. same thing. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, and and then yeah, diaphragms came along, and sure. yeah, I, me- I remember the first time sticking an elk diaphragm in my mouth, and I think I gagged and spit it on the seat next to me in the truck. And mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I don't know if you've ever read the pack back of a elk package and elk diaphragm <laughs> package. I you know I, I'm a typical guy. I just pull it out of the package and pop it in the mouth, and I'll figure this out. Right. And and I think once I got done finally reading the back of that card, I think I was more confused than I was before I read it. So, well, that's a, I, I don't know if you've uh, seen any of the elk bros, any of our, but my hunting partner for 37 years, uh, we're married to sisters. Uh, his name's Leroy Chavez and we all call him Chav. And, uh, you know, Chav's been following my heels for 37 years and you no, know, he went on that venture to start calling he never had to because he had me and so he never worried about it uh but when he decided to start learning that honest to gosh the first time he pulled out one he he did not know which direction it went and i I can imagine a lot of people in the in that same you know scenario so you know thank goodness for today you know where you can get online where you can watch youtube videos and and things like that so that the learning curve gets straightened out some well and not only that but the advancements um you know like i said elk elk diaphragm reads kind of evolved from turkey reads which which were a conventional read you know Mm -hmm. they looked the same on the top as they did on the bottom. And then the confusing was, is you would have some companies that would build them tab up and then you would have other companies that build them tab down. Right. And you know, you almost had to mark each one so that you knew exactly which the top was. But the other cool thing about those conventionals is the thing that I found is if you put them in one way, they would produce a certain set of sounds. Mm-hmm. But if you take them out and flip them over, you could mm-hmm. almost produce a second set of sounds that would have just a little bit different pitch. So it's almost like you had two diaphragms in one. Right. Yeah. I, one of my early techniques um, was uh, it, it's a, uh, a setup that I call putting on a show. And the first time I ever brought in a big herd bull and pulled him off was I actually laid out three different diaphragms on my lap and started sounding like, you know, basically putting in um, what we would call, you know, uh, that um, breeding sequence, you know, I guess you would, you would call it. And I I call it kind of my, uh, my tea kettle sequence, you know, you know, when you put water on and you're trying to turn up the heat and it starts out cold and sounded like three different bulls in three different directions, smaller bull, a a little bit more mature, and then a herd bull and, and had them coming in, you know, kept swapping out reeds coming into each other uh, until it escalated. And by not calling to that herd bull, by making him think that there was another uh, herd bull with, uh, with a hot cow and these other bulls coming in, here he comes. And, you know, that's, uh, that was my first light bulb because I actually did that out of frustration because (laughs) I had been with this bull since, you know, I got on him at three in the morning in the, in the moon, traveled 
five miles with the herd. Things had busted up and gone different ways and they were heading out and I finally just got ticked, went running down a hill, breaking everything I could and sat down and put on that sequence and here they came, you know? So, yeah, you know, if you can't, if you can't uh, go to their party, create your own, right? Create your own. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but yeah, and also too, you know, kind of the advancements that these call manufacturers have made over the years in Mm -hmm. materials and and fine tuning the craft and learning. And I, and I really, really think that a lot of these reads that are being produced now are, are, I mean, they're so much more user friendly Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's definitely, and, and now with different sizes too, you know, you have narrow frames and medium frames and wide frames. And so you can, you can really, really find a read that, you know, really fits the, the roof of your mouth, fits your palate so that you get a really good seal. And, and I think you just, people have the ability to learn much faster because they're not having to fight. It's not that cookie cutter, you know, all the reads are one size and right you're going to bend the heck out of them or this or that, or get out the scissors and trim to force that thing to fit. You can go around to these different manufacturers and grab different reads. And and in fact, that's one thing that I teach a lot with, you know, brand new callers is, uh, you know, there's, there's three reads that I typically recommend from three different companies because they are three different sizes. Right. And, And the people can immediately know, get a sound what's going to fit them the best. And yeah, and and that's the thing that I I think too, one of the things that I think have have, have kind of seen change is the level of patience. Right. Uh, You know, 20 years ago, the level of patience was much, much higher where now today it's instant gratification. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely. You know, you, you push a button, the TV turns on, and you have 258 channels at your disposal. You you walk in the kitchen, you grab something, you pop it in the microwave, and you have something to eat in a minute and a half. Okay, 20 years ago, not so much. We had three channels, and microwaves really weren't a whole huge, big, popular thing. So well, I, I really think one of those things that changed that for people so they could get that instant gratification, you know, when they started putting the palate plate in yes. and then people started to dome that on the top so that it kind of fit into a mouth more snug, uh, you know, like uh, uh, Corey and Rocky Mountain Calls with their, with their dome on that, that make it so much uh, easier for people to, to get a good fit and to get a good sound out of it. And uh, I think those advancements have really done a lot for the calls. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the advancements, yeah. In in materials too. And um, I I mean, just the longevity of some of them too. And unfortunately that's one question I get asked a ton, you know, how long should a read last? And there's so many variables that are involved because, you know, the acids in our latex really break down the latex and some people have, you know, higher levels of acids and, you know, are you taking the them on their dashboard on on the dash of the truck? You know, how (laughs) how are you treating this thing? And, and And they don't understand what heat does to the latex. Right. but, But I also hear from so many people that are like, you know, I can't find a read that that will last more than two or three days to my aggressive bugling from sunup to sundown. 
I'm like, well, what reed are you using? And most of the time I'm finding that they're using a single light latex. And they're, and they're cranking on it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, you're an aggressive heavy type collar. You need at least a double to have that rigidity that can put up to that abuse. And, and again, this is where I kind of talk about that instant gratification because their first response all of a sudden is, well, yeah, but when I take that double out of the package, um, it, it doesn't give me the cow sounds that I have to produce. I have to call on it for a while before it will uh, do what I want it to. Right. <laughs> yes, but guess what? If you pull it out of the package and rip 20 or 30 good hard bugles on it, it will then cow call the way you want, and then it will last a lot longer sure. than that one that will do everything. And, and I see that all the time. People, well, it even works in the other direction too, because there's some of those single latexes that somebody wants to do a cow call with and they throw it in and some of them just have to be broken a little bit. I mean, sometimes it doesn't hurt to scream on them a little bit so no. that they soften up and, and then get a better sweet sounding cow call off of it. You got to tune those, them. Yeah, that's, that's those heavier, heavier latexes. Right. Um, but again, I see that all the time. And I've seen this over the years at shows where, you know, people will walk up and they'll buy a reed, they'll take it out of the package, they'll pop it, and, and they'll try to do something. And immediately, if it doesn't produce that perfect cow sound, they take it out and they throw it down and go, this thing's garbage, and they walk away. Yeah, it's like throwing where, away a $7 bill, right? Well, and like I said, had they just, because that's, that's what I, any, any reed, especially if I know that, it, that it's a heavier latex, the first thing I'm going to do on those is rip bugles on it first to exactly. get that reed to settle in the pocket. Then I'm going to go into the cow sounds. Right. But that same person that just tried the cow sound once, take it out, throw it away, go, this is garbage. Had they ripped those good hard bugles to get it to settle in, that may have been the best read that they have ever used or could do anything they wanted to it, but they sure. just didn't give it the time. Yeah, I think a lot of those people never had uh, a son or a daughter that was uh, uh, in music class. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, yes, I mean, the progression uh, of the student musician. Oh man, because my daughter, you know, when she first started playing that, uh, in, you know, the the clarinet and trying to get all that, that noise out of there. Oh my gosh, how horrible do they sound before they start making beautiful music? And, yes. you know, it's just learning about proper placement. It's about lear- learning about proper volume of air. And, and, you know, if I was to recommend to a newbie out there, and like you said before, they come in different sizes, you know, mm-hmm. you, and when we say sizes, we're talking about the distance between the horseshoe where the latex is, you know, Correct. you have that half inch, you have that five eighths inch uh, that used to be the only frames that were made were those half and five eighths, weren't they? I mean, you said well, there's three early, sizes, early, but early on, they used to be one inch. They, they followed the Turkey at, at that one inch, three wow. quarter. Yeah. And that, that, that one inch is really tough because you got to do a lot of bending with it if you have a small mouth and absolutely. Uh, and so what I mean by that is, you know, the wire frame, you'd have to bend that down a little bit yep. so that you could get it to fit in your palette. But, yeah. uh, you know, I try to tell those guys that are coming out, if you have never tried one before, get that half inch, put that in there. It's going to fit and uh, you're going to get a noise out of it, which, like you said, because of the gratification, we, <laughs> we want them to make a sound and then yes. start working with that. From yes. there. 
And, uh, and what, what I teach is find the widest frame that you can that will fit in your palate between your teeth because a lot of people think that you need to fit the frame, the tape, everything up in between. Up in, your oh, I see. Yeah, right. Oh. No, the tape is going to do it in ways, which is going to help. So, but by finding the widest frame that you can, it actually gives you more latex area to control and to play. And because when you start going, you know, the real narrow reads, now all of a sudden the amount of latex that you have to work with narrows also. So you have to be really, uh, you know, fine with what part of the tongue, you know, you're really flexing. And, and so I, I've personally found with beginners getting them on those little wider ones, mm -hmm. they actually have a little better time with sealing. And, and then, you know, once they advance a little bit, okay, yeah, now you can play, but for some people, no, they have to go those narrow frames because they have those, those narrow palettes. Right. And, and they just feel like they have a, a, a ball in their mouth, you know, when they get too wide on the, the gag reflex. Yes. yes. yes so, yes, yes. you know, when we talked about the, the effect on Sweden that, you know, woodsmanship, you yes. know, that's kind of the area. GPSs are phenomenal. They have totally changed the game. And even more so than that, cell phones have totally changed the game because, you know, like I tell my grinders out there, I call my blue collar grinders out there, you don't have to spend four or $500 on a GPS these days because everybody has one in their pocket. You know, yep. you, you can do a subscription for $30 at Onyx and you're yep. off and running and you know, you've got a, a big screen on your phone, but man, have they changed the game. You can be totally fearless Yes. when you're yeah. chasing out. However, Michael, what happens to these people that, uh, man, that something happens to that GPS? Uh, it, it, as soon as technology dies and, and they don't have the technology to fall back on, they're just they're lost. They don't know what to do. And, and yeah, the woodsmanship skills and um, I mean, tracking and reading terrain and, and, and all these different things I think is, is, is really a lost art. Um, but, but, you know, also too, you know, paying attention to shadows, paying attention uh -huh how high the sun is you know is in the sky you know using using your fingers to you know do the do the 15 minute deal you know to figure out how much daylight you have left um but also you know navigating um so clarify that for them because you said fingers for the 15 minute deal that went over a lot of people's heads so so it's it's kind of an old way of so when the sun is setting in the evening and if you if you basically set your bottom on the horizon and so like right now if the sun is touching my top finger I know that I have about an hour of daylight left before that sun mm -hmm. hits the bottom and and so maybe I have to go this and I can stack two more fingers okay I have an hour and a half so, or, Ooh, I have 45 minutes. Oh, I have 30 minutes. I need to get moving. Right. So it, it's just one of those things that 
yeah, didn't, didn't have, man, how much, how much daylight do we have left? How much time do we have left? Well, yeah, you can look at your clock, you know, your watch and go, okay, it's 4.30, but okay, well, what time is the sun scheduled to set that day? Or, right, or, you know, this exactly. Or that. Yeah. So in that in the mountains, that time that is set to sun to to go down for somebody else does not count for you because of the mountains. No, no, exactly. And um, you know that's that's one thing that having conversations, you know, with with my grandfather. I remember one time he was talking to me about uh, you know the side of the tree that moss grows on, and and he was explaining exactly. the cool side of the mountain versus the hot side of the mountain, and it went over my head, but until I was actually out there and then I've got him, you know, in my head and all of a sudden I'm looking around and going, Oh, okay. Um, yeah. When I am on the South facing slopes of the mountain, it is hot, you know, because of where we were at compared to the equator and where the sun is, you know, how that heat is beating, beating on that Southern. But as soon as I roll around that hill and now I'm getting into the North and Northeastern facing side where those afternoon shadows are really hitting, man, it immediately is 10 to 15 degrees cooler. And now you get a little Creek in there and it seems even cooler yet too. And okay. Survival mode, you know, right. I know, I, I know I headed south from town, so if I have to get back, or south from my truck, so I know I have to go north. I know there's a road north the, of here. So yeah. then understanding the south side of the mountain versus the north side and using the shadows and, and, and all that, you can really help yourself navigate or just taking that time to you know, pay attention to landmarks. And that's one thing that I teach a lot with people is when you're out locating elk and you get a response, pick a landmark. Sure. You know, whether it's a rock outcropping or a great big old dead snag or, or something. Well, and look at those shadows immediately. You know, if you hear that animal off in front of you, you look at those tree shadows, if they're pointing directly off to your right, man, you know you can move with those shadows directly off to your right there. And depending on whatever time of day is, now you know where you're east-west, you know you're hitting north or south. But mm -hmm. using those shadows on those trees and paying attention to that, and I try to tell people, do not become a passenger when right. you're out in the woods. Don't, you know, take a look at your GPS and start heading a direction without still hunting where you are looking behind you looking at your back trail looking all around don't be a passenger notice what type of area you're in look at the vegetation you know just like what you were saying it's 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 critical to that woodsmanship because if something does happen you well, and also, still have other abilities you know also too when you're starting at lower elevation and working towards higher elevation and you're looking up Mm -hmm. how it looks. But as soon as you gain some elevation, you turn around and look back down, how it looks so much different. different right? And now all of a sudden it's like, holy cow, when I was down below looking up, I couldn't see 30 yards. Right. Now I'm 500 yards up here and I can see all the way to the bottom. What the heck? This is, this is crazy. Right. You, you know, but also too, yeah, you're exactly right where, you know, that's one of those things that always constantly looking around, um, because there's always little features that then all of a sudden you start recognizing. So if you do, I, I always joke that I've never been lost. I was turned around for four and a half hours once. I was never lost. I was only turned around. Hey man, if you got so, back, you were it was 
but it was one of those things where, you know, now all of a sudden I got to something that I started recognizing small little tiny things. And it's like, okay, I've, I've been here. Now, when I was here before, was this little thing, was it on my left or was it on my right? Right. So, you know, so then little things like that help reorient yourself and get you out of a bad situation. Right. Most definitely. I, I want to circle back a little bit. And, sure. uh, and when we talk about, you know, we talked about calling uh, elk earlier. What do you think, and, and I know you know this, man, because with all the, the, the questions and answers you've had on your, on your live show, it has to happen all the time. What are some of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to calling out? Oh, okay. <laughs> Here we go, right? Yes, yes. So, okay, number one that I've heard this for years is somebody will say, oh, I never bugle. If you bugle in my area, elk just run the other way. <laughs> and, and, and so my first response typically is go, okay, I have a question for you. So you say if there's any bugling in your area, elk run the other way. Yes, yes. So you are talking about a herd animal that is extremely social. So if this social herd animal runs every time they hear a bugle, how do they ever herd up? How do they ever repopulate and breed and, and all this? And then that'll kind of get them thinking and they'll be like, well, just from our experience. And I'm like, okay, tell me your experience. And, and usually a lot of times what it is, is they're working up, it's already light, they threw out a bugle. They got a response from a, a bull farther up in the canyon. They kind of started working that way. They bugled again. But now the next time the bull responds and he's 300 yards deeper in the canyon. And they're like, oh, that bull's just running from us. No, he's not. Basically, he started in the dark down where you are. He has a place he's heading to, which is his bedding area. And he wants to get to that bedding area at a certain time of day. So he's using the thermals in his nose to check everything in front of him. And he's going to time it so that when he gets to the bedding area, those thermals change and he's able to smell his back trail. If right. he doesn't smell anything following him, then they're just going to calm down in bed. The fact that he is bugling back to you, he's acknowledging that he heard you. And he's just basically saying, we're right here. We're heading this direction. Come with us if you want. Exactly. But then the other thing, I'll take it a step further and go, well, what type of bugle did he do? And normally people have that deer in the headlights look of, what do you mean? Right. I mean, a, a bugle is a bugle. What, what, what do you mean, what kind of bugle? Well, was he doing a location bugle? Was he doing a display bugle? Was he challenging another bull around? What type of bugle did he do? And again, they'll be like, well, what do you mean they have different bugles? That's okay. that knowledge thing. It is. It is. And, and, and that's another advancement from 20 years ago with mm -hmm. the studies that have been done on the vocalizations. But, you know, and I'll tell them, I, I said, okay, in the human language, in English, we can say the same word, but attach different emotions to it. And because of the different emotions that we attach to that same word, it gives it almost a different meaning because of the emotion that's attached. Same thing with elk vocalizations. 
you can attach different emotions or different things onto that same sound and give it a different meaning. So only difference between a lip ball and a location bugle is the lip ball has that growly buzzing of the yeah. lips. It's adding some emotion into it that just is giving it a different meaning. Screaming so, some anger. Screaming yes. some anger. Yeah, getting some aggression in there. So yes, the the bugling in my area elk run the other way. Because every time I hear that in my head, I just picture elk just scattering, running around the hills, you know, every right. which way. And so um another huge myth is elk are call shy. You, you just, you can't call to them like you could, you know, back in the day, they're just, well, okay. So again, a social herd animal that is reactive. They, they react to their environment. They react to what's going on around them. They react to everything. So again, call shy have a great story. So a few years back, I was calling for one of my hunting partners. It was, it was an evening hunt and we got multiple bulls going and right there at last light had two bulls come in and I was back behind him working. I heard his bow go off. I heard the hit. And so, you know, I continued to call for a little bit and then I, you know, eased up there and, and I said, okay, you know, where was he, you know, had him point out everywhere. Um, you know, where did he disappear to? And, and this bull dove into some really, really thick brush and we got right to the edge mm-hmm. and it, it was already way too dark. It was going to be a really, really dark night. And, and I said, you know, we're going to be cold enough tonight. It's going to get, you know, 33, 32 degrees, uh, let's just come back in the morning and we'll pick up the blood trail and, and get after them. And we got in there the next day and right off the get go where that bull, one tiny little pin drop of blood. Mm-hmm. And we started heading down and all of a sudden, of course, that path branches off and there's elk tracks, you know, all over through there. And we never, ever found another speck of blood. I mean, we spent a good six, seven hours combing that and we followed one trail that popped up over the top and there was a little, little basin in the back. And I hear this bugle and I'm like, that's your bull. And, and all of a sudden he pops out and sure enough, it was the same bull still just screaming, running around. It's like, okay, he's fine. So we backed out, waited two days and then went back in for a morning hunt. And I had one of my other hunting partners with me and it was, it was, it was, kind of funny because we, you know, parked the truck. It was still a little dark. We were sitting there drinking coffee and I hear this noise. And so I roll down the little window a little bit and it's Jurassic park. There is just multiple bulls, cows and calves. And I I told him, I said, well, good news is the elk are still here. Bad news is they're only about 60 yards from the truck right now. They're just barely starting to work their way up. We got out of the truck, worked over there. Once it was light enough to see, he could see his pins and I started calling and after about 15, 20 minutes, I hear his bow go off. So again, I keep calling to kind of calm that animal down. And about three minutes later, I hear his bow go off again. And I'm like, okay, did he miss on the first one? Or Because mind you, I'm back calling. I, I can't see right, what's going right. on up there. I'm just reacting on what I'm hearing. And so I get up to him and I said, did you shoot twice? And he goes, it was awesome. <laughs> He goes, we got set up, those bulls were screaming, and you know, you started going through your routine, 
And I saw this one bull in the back just stop and turn. And it was so awesome to watch his lay his head back and scream at you. And then he came trotting right down the trail and stopped right there. And I zipped the first arrow through him and he turned and ran back. And you bugled perfectly because he stopped, stood there for a little bit looking around and then came back into that exact same spot. And I got a second arrow in him. And I'm like, right. perfect. Sure. So we wait a little bit, we track the bull, find him and start breaking him down. And as soon as I peeled the hide on the right side, right in line with his ribs mm -hmm. was the arrow from my first hunting partner. Wow. So this is a bull that I called in three times and got shot three times in a three day period. So if there was ever an elk that was going to be call, call shy, shy. Right. you would think it was him. Right. So... It's not that elk are call shy. It's that there's people that don't understand elk vocalizations or elk situations. And what they're doing does not fit the surrounding. The story that they're telling doesn't fit. Or they're being way too aggressive. Um, yeah, they have you, an immature bull that's not that interesting. You know, he just wants to pal around and you're screaming at him like, exactly. I'm going to kick your butt. So. Yeah. Yeah, he's not going to hang around. No, you have you have that guy that, you know, that bull that you do a sound and he's, Ooh, and mm -hmm. then most people just, you know, and screaming <laughs> at him. So, and I've talked to several people that are like, well, yeah, but that's how I hunt. And I said, great. I said, do you ever go to barbecues or gatherings or this or that? And he goes, yeah. I said, okay, next time you're there, walk in, say hi to everybody, wait five minutes and then shout F off at the top of your lungs to everybody. Yeah. He goes, well, nobody would want to talk to me. I said, well, that's what you're doing in the Elkwood. So why sure. not do it in real life too? So, right. And, and so, you can do that and you might find one of them that says I'm your huckleberry, but that's going to be one out of the 10 that, that you come across. So, right. you know, you got to find somebody that's escalated like that. And I've always believed, you know, that uh, if you match their, their intensity, their intensity. Yep. Um, you can even, I tell guys, if, if you're not sure how to respond, mimic, you know, yes. because then you're staying with their intensity. And as they start to go up, you're going to go up. So you're, you're never going to intimidate. But I think also part of it where people think that, you know, elk are call shy is, is, is because we are so tuned that the only sound that we're listening for is the high pitch of a bugle. Right. Okay. We're not listening for the low audible of huffs and grunts. We're not listening for the low audible of raking. We're not listening for the sound of hooves. Um, because I don't know how many people that I run into that, you know, on the mountainside, how are you guys doing? Uh, we haven't gotten a response all day. Yeah, we haven't heard anything. Okay. Right. You haven't gotten a response. Right. Now, do you mean you haven't gotten a response or you haven't heard a bugle? Well, well, yeah, a bugle, a response. Well, okay, raking is a response. Sure. Uh, huffing and growls are a response. Coming to you is a response. There is more to a response than just a bugle. And that's, that's a huge misconception. And, and I think that's something we got to reiterate is that, you know, a lot of people go out there, they, they've gotten their diaphragm call, they've learned to you know, call a beautiful bugle. And they think that the only thing supposed to happen is another bull bugling back at them. And, you know, 
if that's not working for you, you know, don't keep trying to cram that square peg in a round hole. You know, listen for other types of elk sounds. Look right. for other types of elk sign. You know, yep. change up a little bit because they're out there. If you're seeing fresh sign, they are there and they are vocalizing. You just got to understand what they're doing and what they're saying. Yeah, the, you know, the time of year, the stage of the rut, you know, what's happening. Exactly. In and it's, it, it is all that, you know, knowledge and, and yeah, understanding elk vocalizations, you know, I think that's one thing that really leads to, you know, our success. And one of the keys is because we understand what's going on in the situation based on what we're hearing from the vocalizations. Right. And, and just like when you're engaged working a bull, you know, you're, you're reading his responses and, and basically the ability to tailor, because there's not just this, this, this cookie cutter, one approach, one strategy that works for every single elk. Sure. Um, there's multiple strategies out there. And, and, and really, honestly, throughout a season, you're going to hit them all. And, and you may even hit them all within one interaction of a bull based on what he's doing. But I, I think so many people that if they just took the time to understand a little bit more, I think they would really see their level of success go up exponentially. Well, I think so. there's a lot of people that have had bulls within 50 yards of them and have never seen them because the whole time they were waiting for an animal that walked in silently to sound off instead of using their eyes and, and listening for other sounds, listening for hooves and breaking and stuff. So I, I, I think part of it too goes to that impatience. I, I mean, I remember early on, I, I was impatient several times and, 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 you know, like you talked about paying attention to the sign, you know, you see some of that fresh sign, you set up, you start calling and then man, 20 minutes has gone by. No, no elk has come in. Come on, let's, let's go move to a different spot. You get up right. and you start walking and you walk a hundred yards and bang, there's, there's a bull on the same trail that he was actually coming to you. So. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Now, uh, another big myth, and you and I kind of touched on this a little bit before we started, was mm -hmm. the estrus sound, the, the, you know, the, the sound that the cows gives when she's an estrus and she's ready to breed. Right. Um, there's been two terms that have really been associated with this over the years. One was a hyper hot. Mm -hmm. And and honestly, the term hyper hot actually was developed by a call manufacturer uh, back in the late 90s that basically coined this term as a marketing ploy to sell more calls. And, and honestly, what people think that the hyper hot is, is, you know, this cow that's just, yeah, and, and in reality, it's, it's a series of individual sounds that are strung together is what it is actually. It's not a sound by itself. It's multiple sounds. And, and, and the analogy that I always give is, is in the movie National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, you know, Chevy Chase, when he goes on his tyrant, he's multiple words just linked one right after the other. Now, he didn't invent a new word there. He just said multiple words that strung together to form – 
a very emotional phrase. And that's basically what a cow is doing with this hyperhot. It's, it's a series of sounds. Now, the other one is the estrus buzz or the buzz mew. You know, this right. is the sound that the cow gives when she's ready to breed. The only problem with that is I've heard cows do that exact buzz mew in January. I've heard them do it in June. And to me personally, I think it is more of a demanding sound uh, because when that cow releases her pheromones in the air that the bull is cluing into that she's ready to breed, it also creates a huge a huge herd dynamic excitement that there is a ton of activity, multiple bulls bugling, cows and calves mewing and chirping. It is loud. And in fact, I have 20 minutes of video footage of a herd in Colorado in this exact same situation. And all of a sudden that cow will break out into that buzz mew as a way of demanding that bull, she has to do a sound to separate herself from all the other sounds out there. Right. And that's what this sound is. But, but like I said, I've also seen cows do it in June when they've gotten separated from the other group and they're doing lost mews and they're doing assembly mews and regathering mews and nobody is responding. And all of a sudden they're going to break into that buzz mew that it's basically saying, answer me now, pay attention to me now. Well, that's like a lot of people think that the bull determines where the herd goes. No. And it's Why is not. the bull at the back of the herd then? Yeah, exactly. So it's that lead cow, you know, and, and you know, the one that's generally going to bust you, <laughs> you know, the, the, the smart one. But, yeah, he's, he's pretty much uh, going wherever they're going to take him. Exactly. Because again, that's kind of that knowledge. And here's a little free, free tidbit that we'll, we'll throw out for people. The reason that the bull is usually typically at the back of the group is one, when he's back there, because they're typically moving with the wind. Into the wind. Right. So he's at the back of the herd. So that wind is going across all of his cows in front of him. He's, he's scent, checking. scent checking every mm -hmm. single cow that's in front of him. Right. But also, too, he has the ability that he doesn't have to worry about any other smaller bulls coming up from the rear and snagging a cow and try to hook that cow and take him with him up in the front. So that's Well, because they're actually a couple hundred yards off scent checking as well. You oh, know, yes. I, I think another, um, another misconception is that a herd bull keeps his herd together and he's the only one that breeds his cows. And uh, th that's not the case. You know, there's other mature bulls that are waiting in the winds when he's not able to breed one of those cows because those right. cows are in estrus for, you know, they're what, 12 to 14 hours? 12 something to 14 like that? hours. Yeah. So if he just got done breeding one, he has a recovery time. Um, and, and if there's another one at that same stage, you're exactly right. So, and, and that's why the breeding sequence is so effective when setting up and calling um, because you're producing sounds that are synonymous with the rut that, that, it, that the bulls only do during September and other bulls. And the other thing about the breeding sequence is it attracts breeding age bulls. You're more dominant, older bulls. Um, but they recognize those sounds. So yeah, you're exactly right. They can easily swoop in and, you know, breed that cow because the herd bull is recovering from the other. And plus, He's going to dog that one cow until she's done. So. so I've actually been, you know how when you're working a group and you manage to, 
to do that magical move where you get between a bull and his cows and you're like, wow, this is over. This is aces. And have a, another bull start screaming on the other side with a display bugle and some other bulls lighten up to him where all of a sudden this bull turned and took off from 10 cows that he's with uh, to go to elsewhere. And you're going, what the heck is going on? Well, you know, he's behind the herd. He doesn't have any cows that uh, are in estrus at that time. And now he hears those other sounds that you're talking about yep. taking place that tells him, whoa, man, there's, there's some, a hot cow over in this other area. Yep. I want a shot at breeding her. Right. None, of, none exactly. of my ladies are ready. I'm going to go to try to get that one. Yeah. And yeah. tell me that doesn't leave you shaking your head though as a hunter, because if you don't understand what is happening in that sequence, you're like, what the heck just happened there, man? You right. Know? Well, and, and again, uh, other, other sounds, um, you know, a lot of times like a bull doing a roundup bugle to his cows right. or, or you got in on a herd and you did a couple of cow sounds and this bull does this, this roundup bugle. Well, because of the sounds that are included in that roundup bugle, a lot of people take it as, ooh, I'm busted. That bull is now warning everybody and he's, he's getting ready to go. No, he's actually basically acknowledging that you're a cow and he's basically telling you, come, come on, on over. Mm -hmm. So, right. So again, it's, it's all that knowledge and, and understanding the vocalizations and understanding what's going on around you, but also too is being aware of your surroundings. I mean, matching to it, the environment. It, yes. Yes. Um, you know, we've been out there on those days where it's just a stone cold, quiet day. I mean, no birds are singing, no squirrels are chirping. I mean, it's just eerily quiet and and I've seen and listened to people that basically do a excited herd dynamic. And I'm just shaking my head going, is anything else on this mountainside even remotely close to that? Because you kind of got to stop and go, okay, why is it so quiet? Mm -hmm. is, there, is there a major predator in the area? What is going on? Why and this and that? And, and, and sometimes it even has to do with barometric pressure, which is right. odd as that sounds. Um, but uh, yeah, you're exactly right. Understanding your surroundings, paying attention to that. I mean, these are all little things that we had to learn the hard way. Sure. We, didn't, we, we didn't have access to this information and you're exactly right. There was a lot of times that you're doing everything perfect. And then all of a sudden you're just like, why? What? Yeah, I can, I can remember an instance early in my career of, of elk hunting where uh, I actually, and you know, the, the problem with us as elk callers is sometimes we take <coughs> much pride in, in calling. And, uh, you know, this was years ago. I actually got in on a herd bull. He was standing. His cows were bedded. I got within the perimeter where he's on my left-hand side, probably 50 yards. His cows almost directly in front of me, just a little off to the right. A perfect situation. And in my young mind at that time I'm like oh if I give a little cow call he's going to come right over here and uh one thing I didn't pay attention to at the time was none of his cows were talking uh I wasn't a cow that had started talking moving into that group now all of a sudden 
you know, here, there in front of me, he's off to the side. All of a sudden this cow sounds out of nowhere uh, in an environment that was totally quiet. And all it did was everything jumped up and just blew out of there because, you know, they, it did not fit the situation. I had right. not, I had not taken in my environment and understood that, uh, man, I was just like an alien coming in. I might as well have been an alien landing from, from Mars and it just freaked them out. Yeah. No. And I, and I think kind of another myth or misconception is that you have to be perfect with your calling yeah. when you're out hunting. That's a huge one, right? Everything has to be perfect. And, oh, if you make a mistake or your reed squeaks or pops or this or that, you, you, you might as well just pack it in because you're done. <laughs> Wrong. I have heard actual elk make some the worst sounds. Yeah. To me, I think what's more important is more so understanding and having the structure of what you're trying to say or what the story you're, you're telling right versus you know the perfect pitches and note changes and 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 this and that and i i mean i i've got some friends that let's see daryl daryl and i kind of started hunting we grew up together we kind of started hunting elk together and he lives in montana now mm -hmm. he, still to this day uses an external reed bugle mm -hmm. that a lot of people, if he bugled on would laugh, but that dude has called in probably 300 or more elk in his career. And I'm not talking, you know, little bulls. This guy has three seventies, three eighties, and even some three nineties to his credit on his wall right. with an external reed bugle. So again, there's another myth. You have to use diaphragm reads in order to be successful out there. Right. No, you don't. Cause I've got people that do it with external read cow calls and external read bugles every year. It's more, they understand what they're saying and they're saying the right thing in the right situation. That's the key there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, Michael, this has just been tremendous, buddy. I think, um, uh, the conversation has been great. I think there's a lot of tips that a lot of people can take out of this. Again, uh, hat off to you because this is incredible free content. And we're just two guys that love to talk about elk hunting. And uh, we could probably stay here all night. And I would actually like to do this again with you. Oh, I, absolutely. Like I, would, I, would, I, I would love to come back. I know I've seen, I've seen the door open a couple of times and <laughs> kind of peeking his head in a little bit. So it must be. <laughs> yeah, must I had be. to smile when I saw the arm coming in. <laughs> I, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was so, it. You know, yeah. the, the, the life of a parent, man, you oh, know, it, uh, it is. here, here we have all these people think that, you know, we're talking about all this big time elk hunting, but really we're just guys, we're just fathers. We're just people that, uh, are, are, are living life that, that have a passion. So, you know, uh, I, I had to laugh last weekend. I was at a, uh, archery shop in, in La Grande, Oregon. They had an elk day event. They invited me over to spend the day and, and Wayne Carlton was, was there also. And, mm -hmm. uh, I've known Wayne a lot of years and any chance that I get to hang out with him and, and it, it's just awesome. But it, it's funny because, you know, people came over to my little booth and they, you know, they had hats and pins and, and, and I could see that Wayne signed it and, and I'm like, well, what are you doing? Well, would you sign these for us? And I'm like, 
can I sign it on the inside? <laughs> well, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm really not worthy to put my name, you know, on the same side as, as Wayne. I mean, the, the, what that guy has done for, you oh, know, no kidding. Help calling it's, it's, I'm like, I'm not worthy. And I kind of started joking with him. I said, plus if I sign it on the inside and you wear the hat and you start sweating then that autograph's just going to be, you know, permanently go on your forehead. And, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, just normal guys that have a passion and a love right. for the outdoors and elk hunting and, and, and also have a passion to share the knowledge and in, in seeing others succeed. Right. And so I, you know, I want to kind of, I, I want to thank you and I want to tell everybody out there that's listening Again, I always tell you, if you have any questions, just email me, um, info at elkbros.com. Go check out Michael Sight. Go to uh, the Elk Calling Academy. Uh, go to his Patreon page. He's got stuff on that as well. Um, you know, we hope that what we're giving you is going to give you an experience and a memory that is going to last you a lifetime. and. Michael, I want to have you back. I want to thank Absolutely. you. And uh, we're going to call it for this evening. Perfect. And uh, uh, buddy, thank you so, so well, much. Thank uh, you for having me. It's been a blast. And I, I certainly look forward to coming back. All right, man. Until next time, we'll see everybody. Peace, peace. Good night, everybody. In Wild Country. Rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.